This past year, we have been going through a series called The Gospel According to Matthew. Matthew being one of the four authors of books that describe the life of Christ, his teaching, his ministry, his, his death and resurrection, and what does that mean for us. And a fa- major theme of Matthew's is that call that Jesus had to follow him. Not just believe in him, but to follow him. And we've spent uh, a, a while looking at that. We spent three or four months just in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, the essence of that is Jesus is saying to the people there and to us, even more so to us, because we're on the other side of the cross, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and here is how to live in light of that reality. So he describes how that would be different if we're following Christ in, in his kingdom. And at the end of that, Matthew ends it. As an author, he gives this whole sermon, and he gives a one-line description of what the uh, audience responded. And, they, and their response to this sermon, this teaching of, of great death by Jesus, was that he says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, both, be, both because of the content, but also because of the authority that Jesus spoke with. They had not heard somebody speak that way before with such authority. And then we're told, Matthew then, after he leaves that lengthy teaching, Matthew goes and gives, uh, in in chapter 8, gives a series of miracles. He just goes one after the next. And he goes, uh, healing of the leper, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law. And we're told that he healed many who were oppressed by demons and all who were sick. And the miracles that Jesus did, and Matthew intentionally puts them back to back to back to back, not only because they probably happened that way, but also because he wants to reinforce to us that these miracles meant something to his teaching. These miracles authenticate God's messenger. When somebody says something, they speak for God, and then they do miracles, it kind of legitimizes what they're saying. Also, these miracles give evidence that God is truly at work. Things change. People get attention. People are healed. Demons leave. Hey, I I want a piece of that, is what the reaction is. But also those miracles demonstrate that the kingdom really is at hand and it points, it points that the coming restoration of all creation when there's a new heavens and a new earth. The healing shows that someday all that illness will go away. The removal of the demons, all that evil will go away someday. And Jesus is saying some of it's already here, but it's not yet complete. And then Matthew gives, Jesus sort of pauses in the middle of these uh, miracles and gives this kind of outlandish little talk. He, he gives a call to come follow him. And to follow him and don't be distracted by the pressures and the whirlwinds of life. And he says things like, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And we, and we hear those things, both they did and we do, and we hear those things and we say, uh, did he really mean that? Was he, was he just using hyperbole to get our attention? Or did he really mean that was the cost to following him? That was, that's what it required to follow him. He, uh, does he mean that when he says, follow me and all those other things of life will take care of themselves, but there's something you need to put above them? And I think the, the followers of the, at the time that heard Jesus, wrestled with that. I think his own disciples, that he called disciples, wrestled with that. I think the guy, people who first read Matthew's Gospel struggled with that call. And we struggle, if we're honest, with that call. With Jesus saying, I need your undivided devotion. Don't get distracted by all those other things in life. 
and we, and we processed it, and I think they processed it. They said, seriously, why would we do that? Well, why would we follow you, Jesus? Why would we follow you? Who are you, Jesus, that you make such outlandish requests and expect such devoted responses? Who are you? And I think Matthew now goes on and answers that question. Who is this Jesus that can make this call and expect a devoted response? Will you stand with me as we look at our text for today? We ask you to stand in honor of reading God's Word to us. And, um, I'm going to begin with the text that Josh went through last week because I think it set, it's, it's part of the context, part of the flow of Matthew's answers to the question, why should we follow you, Jesus? So we're going to begin in Matthew 8.23 and we're going to go through verses, chapter 9, verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord, not just as a description of past events, but through the Holy Spirit's enlightenment and, and um, a message and understanding for us and how we live today. Matthew 8, 23. And when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and awoke him and said, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he had, gotten, when he had came to the other side, to the country of the, of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one would pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you, um, cast, the, uh, if you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down a steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. And getting into the boat, he crossed over to, and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying in a bed. And when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, and who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we too can glorify you. Glorify you in our opening, our hearts and our minds to receive your word for each of us today as individuals, as married couples, as families, as Red Sea, that you would allow us to understand even more uh, who you are, whether we've been walking with you for years and decades or we're still trying to figure that out. 
may we have a glimpse and be amazed at your awesome power and your generosity to us in Christ. We thank you in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus calls us to follow him. And Jesus' call to follow him uh, deserves a devoted response for three reasons, according to this text. Three reasons that we should respond with devotion to following Christ. The first one is in the text that Josh covered last week, so I'm not going to talk much about it, but is in, the, in Jesus calming the storm. You heard that. They got in a boat. Jesus falls asleep. The storm rises. They're fearful he's perishing. He gets up and says, why are you afraid? What, you little faith. He speaks, the storm's gone. What I want to point out, though, is their response. I think Matthew, in these series of events we're going to look at today, he's going through events that Jesus did, but what he highlights is how people responded to what Jesus did. Not just what Jesus did, which is obviously important, but he highlights throughout the text how people responded. And how did the, the disciples respond after Jesus calms the storm? They, we're told, Matthew tells us, he, he ends that segment, that story, that account in Jesus' life by saying this, and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They marveled. They wondered. They were amazed. And this, in the way Matthew writes the sentence, it wasn't just some flippant thing. It wasn't just some passing thought. Wow, that's pretty cool. He's saying, no, they, they were taken back by what it was, and they were profoundly impacted by that event. They were amazed. They wondered. And they were wrestling with the question. He tells us, what sort of man is this? This, this guy is different. We knew it, but now we really... There's something else here that we need to comprehend. Not just about the benefits that Jesus provides, but about Jesus himself. And they reflect on us. They were going to think about this. The question remains open. Not because they were in doubt, but because they were thinking, could, could there be more? Could there be more about this guy that we don't know? And they were continued to seek an answer. That's what Matthew, how Matthew ends that account. I think one, as I thought about this this week, I, think, I do think one of the primary indicators that someone has gained an understanding of who Jesus is and who has gained an understanding of the generosity of the gospel is amazement that they're amazed, that they're wonder. They'll go, wow, this is incredible. The more we learn about Christ, the more we learn about the gospel and God's grace and his mercy, the more amazed and wonder we should be consumed with. And when there's a little bit or no amazement, no wonder, we need to ask ourselves, are we really seeing Jesus in the gospel the way he is supposed to be seen? Do we wonder? Do we marvel at Jesus? Whether we're just learning about him or we've been walking for decades, do we marvel, wonder? Are we amazed? And if not, why not? That's what Matthew wants to say. So Jesus' call to follow him deserves our devoted response because he has authority over, the, over nature. We see that in the healing of, I mean, the calming of the storm. But the second account, the second episode, is a series of things happen, all involving getting in the boat and getting out of the boat. So it's all back to back. Is he has authority over the evil spirits and demons. Jesus shows up, we, we read in there, on the other side. They make it to the other side and are immediately met with two men who are demonized. And they are violent men, so much so that people in that region can't go that area because they're so violent. They can't be restrained. 
And this is big. So when he shows up, Matthew's account of it, Luke also has a, a lengthier description, but in Matthew's account of it, of this event, what the first thing that happens is the demons, not the men, but the demons recognize Jesus. And it says in there, verse 29, And behold, they, the demons, cried out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? They recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Now, the title, it's a title. It's, a, it's not meant to be, he's like the part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Son of God is a title like, you're the anointed one, the Messiah. We would say, the Savior. Well, have you come, Messiah, Savior, to torment us before our time? They knew exactly who Jesus was and why he was on earth. That's important to understand. They're very theologically and biblically literate. Demons know a lot of stuff. And yet we see here, they, are you going to, are you, and this is what's amazing about this, and, or that, is they, they say, are you going to torment before the time? They know their time's coming. They know how it ends for Satan and themselves, and that they will be forever in torment because they will be cast into hell. By the way, one of the myths of our culture and even in the church today is that Satan rules hell. Satan, uh, hell is Satan's uh, home turf. That's where he resides, and when God doesn't like people, he sends them to, so Satan can slap them around. That, that is not biblical. Satan's realm right now is here on earth. And hell is reserved for those, both Satan and the demons and non-believers, who are going to go there someday to torment. They are going to hell. They don't rule hell. It's a misconception we have. Not a major point here, but I thought we'd clear it up, okay? The other thing here is, do you, a reference, we've talked about this before. He says, do you, have, you, have you come to torment us before, our, the, um, before the time? He, they're referring to the second coming of Christ. We talked about this a number of times already. And, I, and I, if I remember correctly, that we talked about that um, Jesus is going to return again. And that second, we call it the second coming. He's come once in person. He's going to return a second time in person. That, that's, that is mentioned something like 213 times in the New Testament. That's one out of every 15 verses has some reference to Jesus coming back. It's a big deal. This is one of those references. It's easy to miss. But they, they are saying, we know you're coming back and we're going to get stomped on. What are you going to do with us now? That's their concern. And, and what I want to highlight here is their demons' response to Jesus. The demons have biblical knowledge of biblical truth, and yet they do not repent. They rebel more. Their response to Jesus is to rebel more. And it's a warning to us. It's a warning to people who think they're comfortable say, I, I know about Jesus. I know about the gospel. I, can, I know certain biblical truths and stuff like that. And, and the, the answer to that, Jesus would say, and authors of the New Testament, and we would say, so what? So what? The demons believe that Jesus is the Messiah. How many demons are there going to be in heaven? None. But yet they know the gospel, they know biblical truth, they know all those things. No, the reason they're not there is they do not respond in repentance and faith and obedience to the gospel. They just, a disobedience breeds more disobedience, rebellion breeds rebellion. That's a warning not just to demons, about demons, it's a warning to us. Now, as I thought about this, and Monica and I talked about this this week, I think people hear these kind of texts, 
Uh, and there's about, f I think there are, I'm going to group them into five responses. Five responses that people have when they hear about the demonic, whether it's in scripture, they're reading an account like this, or in, they hear about things today. I think there are five categories of responses. And first, the first one is rejection. That people say, no, no, there's no such thing as demons or Satan or evil spirits. That those are just archaic personifications of evil. We know better now because of medicine and science that things, people behave like that because of chemical imbalance or illness or, or injury or something like that. So that's just, they didn't know better then, so therefore they just record it that way because that's, they were just ignorant. They're behind. Well, the problem with that is the scripture doesn't treat them that way. The scripture acknowledges illness and mental issues and injuries and those kind of things. Sure, those are true. But the scripture equally acknowledges that there are forces of evil, we would call them demons, and they're to be contended with. And, and for those who would say, no, no, that's not for today, here's, here's my response to that, is that to deny the reality of demons, both in the scripture and in our lives today, is to call into question the truthfulness of scripture. If the, if the scripture clearly lays out that these guys are, are here and doing things, and we say, no, no, that can't be true, now we're picking what we want to believe out of Scripture. Why don't we just say we don't need to believe that there's going to be, uh, we need Jesus as a Savior. We can believe anything we want. It's a very dangerous ground to say, no, we can't. We reject them. That's one response. The second response is exactly the polar opposite, and that's fear. That's fear. That's, that, that's people who see, and cultures who see demons everywhere influencing everything. And many cultures around the world give a lot of attention to spirits and trying to pacify them. Through sacrifices and through rituals and through uh, necklaces and other ho hocus pocus and all that kind of stuff. Their goal is, I'll pacify the demon world, the, the spirit world, and they'll stay away from me. And if something goes wrong, it's because they're mad and you don't want to tick off the demons. Whole cultures of this, and even people in our culture live that way. Segments of even Christianity are, for lack of a word, obsessed with demons behind everything. Oh, my, I got a flat tire, must be a demon. I got a cough, must be a demon. I bounced a check, must be a demon. And though demonic forces do influence those kinds of things, sure, not everything is a demon. We don't live in fear. The Bible does, say, does not say for us as Christians to live in fear of the demon. The third one, I think, is fascination. I think people are fascinated with the evil and with evil spirits, demons. Um, they, these people, some of them to the, even to the point of devotion. This is the occult, the new age, witchcraft, astrology. Many world religions are obsessed with the evil spirits to the point where they're devoted to them. And they worship them. And they spend a lot of their time, energy, and affections dealing with those things. Some people, many people, intentionally interact and even seek out evil spirits to do things on their behalf. Some would call it their religion. Others are simply trapped into a bondage that they got into and they can't get out of. But there's a fascination with evil. I think there's a fourth one. This one, I would put under a Royce personal conviction. So you can take it for what it's worth, but this is a conviction that, that I have. 
And that is, I think people respond to the demons as entertainment. What do I mean by that? I mean, we live in a culture where the thrill of watching horror and monster and otherworldly media is a big deal. And we treat it as entertainment. Slasher movies, vampires, werewolves, coming back from the dead, you fill in the blank. The problem is, if we look at Scripture and we look at living in a life and walk with Christ and suffer the truth of the Gospel, evil should not be viewed as entertainment. It shouldn't be give us a thrill, and it is not funny. When evil, especially evil spirits, are treated as entertainment, this is my concern, we are desensitized to the evil itself. And not only that, we, it is something that is overtly offensive to God, and we're entertaining ourselves with it. I don't think that pleases God, and I don't think that means walking with Christ. Personal conviction? Throwing it out here? I have the microphone. I get to do that, okay? You can disagree with me some other time. I think there's a fifth response, and this is the biblical response. There is a biblical response to the demonic. They're real. They're interactive. They're in our culture. So how, how, do we, how are we supposed to respond to them? Well, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus triumphs over Satan and the demons. What was their point when they saw him? Right out of their mouths, they called him the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and they said, have you come to torment us before our time? They know they've lost the war. Their job now is to do as much damage as they can before they go down. That's what they're here to do. And I think that, by the way, that's why we don't know why they wanted to go into pigs. We're not, Matthew does, and Jesus does not tell us, the demons do not tell us. I personally, and other commentaries think, that they just wanted to do some damage. Okay, you're getting rid of us. Let's, let's, let's hurt you, Jesus. So we're going to go into these pigs, and they knew they are going to kill all the pigs, which was the livelihood of the city. So these demons, in a last desperate effort, were going to say, okay, you're going to get rid of us, but we're going, to, we're going to go kick and screaming, and we're going to do some damage. That's what demons do. Jesus came to triumph over them. John tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what, one of the reasons he came. We're told about that in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, the very first thing God says, he says, you know what, my Messiah, the Christ, is going to come, he's going to save, he talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and he says, Satan, you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And ever since then, they've been fighting, and Satan knows he's going to lose. In Colossians, Paul says, he, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's saying when we become Christians, when we respond to the gospel and repentance and faith, one of the things is, in, before then, we are in Satan's kingdom. We live, there's many texts that talk about this, we live under Satan's rule, whether we recognize it or acknowledge it or not. But when we go and respond to the gospel, we are now, under the, and under, we are now children of God. We're under, we are transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus' kingdom. We're in Christ. Therefore, we're out of the realm and the authority of Satan. That's a huge deal. In fact, um, if we go on to other passages, we're just going to glance at it real quickly. In, 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 when we're in Christ and we're walking with Christ, we, make, we, are, we are to stand against Satan and the demonic. James, the Apostle James says this. He says, Submit yourselves then, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Peter 
says, something similar. He says, be sober-minded, but be watchful, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. Be, be alert, Satan's here to destroy, but when you're aware of him, resist, and he's got to flee. Paul goes on a little more detail. He says in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and in, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against power, cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces evil in heavenly places. Paul's saying, yeah, that's real, but we win, and we have an armor, and we are to stand firm against the evils of the world, including Satan and the demonic. That is the teaching of Scripture to resist. That is the reality as Christians we should live in today. This week, on Thursday morning, I'm working on my sermon. I'm working on this part of the sermon, this text. I get a, I get a text from Monica, call me. So I call her. And she tells me that uh, an episode that happened just a few minutes before, that there was a guy in, in front of our house, uh, uh, loudly acting weird, waving his arms, yelling. He had a pack. He had the pack open, but he didn't get anything out of the pack, which kind of concerned her. And she went on to describe this event. She wanted to say, I want you to know, I called the police. Because she was very concerned. And um, so um, the police came, and they interacted with this guy, and she's telling me a little bit about it and stuff. And she called me so that I would know this. I had to call the police today. And that we could pray for them, because the family's a little agitated. And then she pauses and says, oh, by the way, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I say, oh, Jesus casting out the demons. And she pauses again and says, oh, that figures. Well, they're in our yard. <laughs> what I appreciated about her, not that, some, that she just called the police and took the initiative, what I appreciated about Monica is her discernment to say, I've seen this before, and there must be a connection to something, or they wouldn't be in our front yard. Hey, Royce, what are you doing? And this is what I'm working on. They're here, they're real, we deal with them, we resist. What were people's responses to this? Matthew wants us to know people's responses. First of all, what I find extremely interesting is what Matthew doesn't say. Okay? He does not talk, Matthew does not talk about the demon-possessed men. He makes no comment about their interaction with Jesus. Luke does. Luke goes into depth. Well, not depth, a few verses. <laughs> That's depth. Matthew ignores the men. And, I, and I'm interpreting that he doesn't want our attention to be on those men who were healed. He wants our attention on the two groups of people who responded. So he turns our attention. And we read in verse 33 that the herdsmen, they lost all their pigs, but they observed all these events that happened. These herdsmen, um, on going into the city, uh, they told everything. Now hear this. Especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So the herdsmen who were eyewitnesses to this whole, the whole scenario, these guys showing up in a boat, this whole interaction with the demons, the pigs going in the water, they see it all, they hear everything, and they go back to the city and say, the city implying a large population, and say, hey, you need to know, this happened. Remember you know, Bill and John out there in the cemetery who we can't go out there anymore? Let me tell you what happened to them. 
And, and the people were probably amazed. Wow, that's cool. Bill and John are, are free and stuff? Because the herdsmen were especially thrilled with what happened to those guys out there. But then the story changes. We hear the second response. The response of the city. The response of the city. We, they say, I'm imagining things here. Okay, I'm reading between the lines of the text. Hey, that's great. Bill and John got healed. What? Wait a minute. What happened to the pigs? What, what happened to our livelihood? Are you kidding me? And what do they do? They go out to meet Jesus. They go out, then they go out to meet Jesus. And we're told here, behold, the, all the city, there's a lot of people showing up for this. Go out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave. The same word as the demons used, they begged. They begged Jesus, leave us alone and leave here. Isn't that astonishing? I, maybe I'm the only one astonished by it. Jesus heals these men of this massive affliction, the demons, that terrorize not only these men, but their community. And yet their response is, leave. Why? Why did they ask Jesus to leave? Matthew does not explicitly tell us. Some, many surmise it's because they were mad about their pigs. That they said, hey, listen, Jesus, you messed up our livelihood, you messed up our food source, we want you out of here. Maybe. Matthew doesn't explicitly say anything. Luke is more interaction. I'm not going to go through Luke's interaction. Luke does talk about Jesus interacting with them, the men themselves. But one thing Luke adds, one simple phrase that Luke adds, he has the same line, they came out and begged Jesus to leave. But they, he adds one other commentary that Matthew doesn't add, and I'm going to take the liberty to borrow from Luke to help us understand. And Luke says this, For they were seized with great fear. So Luke tells us that the, the, the city said, get out of here, because they were seized with great fear. Here's my question. Our question is, who are they fearing? Do you fear a guy who comes and brings healing and gets rid of the demon, frees up demon-possessed people and makes your community safer and better? Maybe. I think, again, this is Royce's wrestling with the text itself, I think what they were afraid of was the demons. I think they were afraid the demons are going to come back. They were a culture fascinated with demons, and they said, oh no, Jesus ticked them off. They're going to come back and retaliate. So Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you around here. It's my speculation, but I think it holds weight. How do we respond when we hear about God touching someone's life in a dramatic way? When you hear that, somebody, whether it's with demons or addiction or healing or some overcoming some kind of sin or whatever, when you hear those stories, those accounts, what is your response? What is our response? Do, do we rejoice with amazement? Like, that is awesome. Or like the crowds, do we get defensive out of fear? Do we, do we process that kind of thing saying, okay, that, that hasn't happened to me, I'm not sure it's real. Uh, if it is true, what does that mean? What, will it cost me something? Uh, what, what am I going to have to, if this is real, this is going to happen, what am I going to have to give up? 
That's what these people were wrestling with. Is there something that I want more than Jesus? Is there something that I fear more than Jesus? I think we wrestle with that when God works in somebody else's life. Jesus' call to follow him deserves a devoted response because A, he has authority and power over nature, B, he has authority and power over evil spirits, and thirdly, because he has authority and power to forgive sins. We see this in the next text, where Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic. And we read that already. And what's interesting here is how the story unfolds, and it's easy just to read the thing about the healing and his interaction with the scribes, which we'll get to in a minute. But how the story unfolds, the wording is very specific and very important. We're told that he he gets in the boat, leaves the Gadarenes, goes back over to the other side towards his hometown. And he says, in verse 2 of chapter 9, And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take up your heart, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Here's the thing that's easy to overlook. Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. The people who were brought the paralytic, and probably the paralytic's faith. Jesus observed in the plural... This group of people believe and have faith in what I'm doing. That's a huge deal. He could, have just, he could have accounted for the healing and just talked about the paralytic, but he did not. Their faith. They, these people, were not told who they are, their relationship to this guy. I think intentionally. It's vague. These people who concern, they had a concern for their friend. They shared their faith with each other. They had to talk this over. Hey, you know what? He's paralyzed. We hear this Jesus guy is healing. Why don't we take him? They had to communicate together. They, they had to act together. They carried him. They brought him as a group to Jesus. So their faith together was communicated. They acted together. They responded in community. They addressed the paralytic's needs. Sometimes, though, when We have people who are in need. It's very easy for us. We see people struggling. That other people are quick to find fault with that person. The reason you struggle is because it's your fault. It's your problem. What did you do? The Bible talks about those kind of attitudes. And instead of joining that person, joining with that person on their journey and walking with Jesus, we often sometimes make it worse for them. A number of years ago, I was talking to a pastor who was saying that uh, he had a, a young man in his church who was a paralytic. He was confined to a wheelchair. Um, I don't remember why he was confined to a wheelchair, but he was confined to a wheelchair, and the, the man had come, the young man had come to the pastor because he was distraught. He, he was upset, and this is why he was upset. Because he, whatever the reason was that he was in the wheelchair, he wanted Jesus to heal him, and he wanted to walk. And he and his friends, and his Christian friends, had prayed about it. And he had been praying for a while, and, he inv- and his Christian friends were praying with about, and, and, and it came to the point where his so-called friends came to the conclusion, and they quoted verses like Jesus saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. They said to him, the reason you're, not, you're still in that wheelchair is because you don't have enough faith. So the man obviously was very upset. So I said to the pastor, I said, what did you tell him? He said, I turned to Matthew 9. I turned to the text that we're looking at today, showed him verse 2 and said, and he read that to the guy. He says, you go to your so-called friends 
He read to them, Jesus saw their faith. And then Jesus said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So he said, I told this guy, go, open your Bible, show these, these so-called friends this verse and tell them the reason you're still in the wheelchair is because they lack faith. We sometimes lose the significance of community. We can turn it, unfortunately, whether they're well-intentioned friends or not, misguided, probably, surely not tactful, and not helpful to this guy. And it's not the gospel. Community, God has placed us to be saved in community for a reason. When we're together in community, our faith is multiplied. Not just added, is multiplied. The actions we take together are multiplied. When people care for each other, and, and, and that's an act of faith, that has a, uh, a, a multiplying effect. It has a greater impact than if just we walk by ourselves. The church is not simply a meeting of people who have similar beliefs. We, we, get, we like these same things. But it's God's design that we live in community and we walk together in the plural. That Jesus, we sh- uh, with Jesus, we're sharing our expectations and our experiences. We share our, the benefits and the burdens. We share the joys and the struggles of walking with Jesus together. And unfortunately, I think most of us, myself included, when we start to struggle, our tendency is to withdraw from community. It is to isolate ourselves. I am the problem. I don't have enough faith. I, I was something wrong with me. God must not love me. So therefore, I'm the problem. And the irony is, we get caught and we withdraw. At the time, we need other people more than any other time. We need to know, not, not only do we need to be in community for moral support, but we need people to intercede to Jesus on our behalf to overcome many of the struggles we face in our life. And sometimes we need to get better friends. Okay? Our faith is personal, but it's never private. And when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, take, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, let me ask you, if you're a paralytic and you show up to get healed and Jesus says to you, your sins are forgiven, is that what you want to hear? Aren't you a little disappointed? I would be. I'm sorry, I would be. My sins, I'm not here for my sins. I'll go to the temple for my sins. I need to walk. And yet Jesus, knowing what's going on here, not only with this man and his friends, but the scribes and the crowds, says, hey, I, didn't, I dealt with nature, I dealt with the demons, now I'm going to deal with the really important thing. Sins. The forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is more fundamental and important issue than being, than being a paralytic. Sin is what separates us from God. Not our physical health, not the demons. They don't separate us from God. Our sin separates us from God. Everyone who, just if you think about this, everyone who receives a miraculous healing, physical healing, or is delivered from demons, eventually dies and has to face God for their sins. Sins is the more important issue, Jesus is saying. The gospel message itself is about the forgiveness of sins. It's not only that, but it is there. When Jesus, later in Matthew, he describes, he has a Lord's Supper, and he breaks the bread, and he says to them, 
Um, he explains to them why he's going to die. He, says, he breaks, uh, takes the cup and he says, Drink all of you, for this blood is the covenant of, uh, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew that his blood was going to be spilled on the cross so sins can be forgiven. And we're told by um, Paul that, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh, and God made you alive with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against them in his legal demands, and he set them aside, nailing them to the cross. Your sins are nailed to the cross. Payment is done. And then the next verse, which I think is not, it's obviously inspired, after he nails our sins to the cross, Paul's next verse is, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over in him. When Peter preached this famous sermon in the beginning of Acts, and he tells them, hey, this is who Jesus was, and this is, and this is uh, why he died, they respond, tell us what we must do. And his response to them is, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. Our response to the gospel message is repentance and faith and the action demonstrated in being baptized that we're identified with Christ. Forgiveness of sins is a promise that we get when we respond to the truth of the gospel. Not just in the gospel blatantly, but it's provided for us, but the promise is only to those who respond to the truth of the gospel and repentance and faith. Jesus knows this, obviously. It's an understatement. In fact, in verse 6, he says, because he says, your sins are forgiven, and his scribes go into a little tizzy. And he says, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of God had authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. That miracle of healing the paralytic was his, validated his claims that he could forgive sins. You don't believe I can forgive sins? Let me give you a little quick physical demonstration. And the paralytic got up. What were people's responses to Jesus? Well, we see the scribes. They said, behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. The scribes did understand what Jesus was saying. They understood when he said that he was just not acting on behalf of God, that Jesus was acting as God. That's what they had a problem with. And it's interesting, like the demons, the scribes are very well-versed biblically. They know their Bibles. They know their Old Testament, as we understand it. They had mental understanding, and yet they still refused to submit to Christ and the Gospel. Just like the demons. And Jesus says to them, Jesus knows what's going on. He says to them, why do you, why do you think evil in your hearts? Again, I think an allusion to his interaction with the demons. Why do you, why do you think evil in your hearts? The heart is our center of our wills and our affections. It's not just cognitive. Just like the proverb says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. People don't come to the conclusion there's no God because intellectually they figured it out. No, they say in their heart, I don't want there to be a God, so I won't believe in him. Jesus is saying the same thing. You scribes, you people, see what I do. You hear what I say. It's not that you can't believe me. It's that you won't believe me. And you won't submit to me. We also have the crowds. There's crowds there. We're told how the crowds respond. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Again, the crowds, they're amazed. This is really crazy stuff. This Jesus is really knocking it out of the park. 
They like what they see. They're excited about what they see. But the implication here is you notice in his description of that, they're, they're glad what happened. They said they're glad that who had given such authority to men. It's very generic. What's missing from their description is any kind of personal relationship, any kind of personal involvement with Jesus, any kind of personal response. We like what's happening here as an event, but there is no language of them receiving and getting involved and responding in a positive way. Jesus got their attention, but they were not ready to embrace Jesus and follow him. Notice that, just like the people in the city, their response was primary that of fear. Fear. This is exciting, but it scares me, so I'm going to keep it at arm's length. The third person in the story that's taught, we we hear a response. It's easy to read over this. It seems like one of the details of the story, but I think Matthew has it here for a very important reason. And that's the paralytic. We read in verse 6, He, Jesus, said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The next verse, the next line says, And he rose and went home. Little thing? I think it's a huge thing. Jesus says to the guy, get up and go home. I, I kind of expected, hey, join, my tr- join the disciples. Come on, be a part of us. No, Jesus had something to do. The man in Matthew's collection did not question that. He did exactly what Jesus said. He responded in repentance, faith, and obedience and did what Jesus said. And that's how Matthew ends this account. The man heard and he did exactly what Jesus said. So why should we follow Jesus? Why should we wrestle with the cost in this of following Jesus, of being devoted to him in such passion? Matthew tells us a number of reasons. Jesus has authority over nature. Not just now, but he's pointing to the time there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. Paul tells us that the earth groans to be restored to its original state. Jesus has authority over the power of the evil spirits. We and now can have deliverance and freedom and protection from them, but someday, ultimately, they'll be put away. Why should we follow Jesus? Because he has authority over the power of sin, to forgive sin. Today, we can experience freedom from guilt and shame. Ultimately, sin itself will be removed. That's a Summary of this is, in Christ, when we believe the gospel, we have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin, but we will be delivered from the presence of sin. We have seen how Christ has not only made the call, but given us reasons why we should follow him. Earlier in Matthew, when in Matthew 8, when he did the, did the um, uh, miracles, Matthew gives an illusion, gives us a little hint, gives us a red flag. He actually waves a big red flag and says why Jesus was doing this. He says that they brought Jesus here, the oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits, and with a word he healed all who were brought to them. And then Matthew makes this comment. He says, this is to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew wants us to know that this events that he's describing, both before then and after then, weren't an accident. Christ came for those reasons. 
And I want to I invite you now as I close to take communion. If you have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith, if you are a follower of Christ because, yes, I do maybe not understand all that it entails, but to the best of my ability and with the help of God, I am going to walk in community in faith with Christ. We invite you to come and take communion in a few minutes when we do that. But as we do, I want you to prepare. I want you to hear the words of, of Isaiah who describes a long time before Christ came, God's plan for us a long time after Christ came. He says these words, and with these words I close. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in the scope of your plan, the, the, the story of God, all that you have for us, we know for certain what you are doing and what you are going to do. We thank you, Lord, that our griefs, our sorrows, our illness, our transgressions were upon your Son. That because of that, we are free from shame and guilt and eventually pain and sorrow. And Lord, I pray for each of us, as again, individuals, as families, as a church, we would be amazed at all that you've done for us that we would wonder and respond uh, with joy to seeing you work in the lives of those around us and respond with greater faith and a greater commitment and a greater desire to see you do more in our midst. I pray, Lord, that our lack of faith, like you rebuked for the disciples to have, would not be a hindrance, but through your Spirit, through mutual encouragement, we would multiply our faith to see you work mighty works among us and in us. And we pray this and we seal this prayer with taking communion and with an expectation of you doing that work. And we thank you in your precious and glorious name. Amen.